Maynard kind of scolded me. He, go, he said, um, it's okay to have goals. He goes, but enjoy the journey because at the end of the day, all there really is, is the journey. Once you get to a goal, I'm sure you've noticed this. Um, you, you reach a goal and then you go, okay, I'm here. Now what? So it's just a constant, it's a constant thing of moving on to the next thing. So that is the motivation, I guess. I mean, why would, why would anybody stay in a situation that doesn't make them happy? And or, and or doesn't create value. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Lynn Nicholson. Lynn, well, he's a seeker. As a young trumpet player, his search for a better solution to playing outdoors led him to discover the MF Protocol. His superhuman upper register landed Lynn his first professional gig with Bill Chase and then as a featured member of the Maynard Ferguson Band. While Lynn's life has taken some unpredictable twists and turns, he's always followed his heart and remained true to his inquisitive nature. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. And welcome to an exciting episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang. I am joined by, uh, to me, a legend in the the land of trumpet world, and uh, it's Mr. Lynn Nicholson. Lynn, I am so so happy that we could get together today. Happy to be here, Jose. Oh man, you know, um, it's been. Um, I, I I was just thinking about it this morning. The first time I heard you play, like you know, many trumpet players, uh, was uh, back on your uh, your work with with uh, Maynard, uh, because the first Maynard album I ever bought was uh, Chameleon, and I remember sitting there listening to it and looking at the liner notes. Yeah, for those of you who are old enough to remember liner notes, uh, some people have never seen those in their lives, but uh, you're like, who the heck is this? And then uh, you know, finding out who you were, and then kind of following your career uh as you went on like with uh with Thad and and uh the uh Toshiko Akiyoshi and uh, Luke back and band and stuff like that and the work you've done I mean you you uh helped to to kind of really uh in many ways at, at that stage it's like wow this young guy is just blowing the roof off off of this and and I think it was really inspirational so um you know when you think back on your career um like were you aware of uh, some of the impact that you were making at that time, you know, being kind of at the forefront of some of kind of this last guard of, of uh, a big band and, and especially that kind of high energy playing? Not at all. I was, uh, I was lucky in retrospect, I was lucky to catch the tail end of what I call the big band era. But um, yeah, I had no idea. I was just trying to Every band I got into, I was like the worst trumpet player, but I had the best high notes. So I was scrambling to keep up. Yeah. Well, you know, it, 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 uh, it was a skill, you know, and, and that was, I guess, a, I guess a, a, the question, first question I wanted to ask you was, is this something that you came, I hate to use the word natural, uh, but this is uh, playing the upper edge, something that came more naturally to you. 
uh, or was it something that you had to do a whole lot of, uh, you know, figuring out? Uh, and then we're going to get into to the next phase of this once I get your answer to this. So, so was this something you kind of stumbled on or was it something to actually conscientiously kind of uh, try to, to develop a methodology about? I, I stumbled onto the what is now called the MF protocol when I was um, 16 or 17, a junior in high school. Um, marching season in the Chicago area and our mouthpieces were sticking to our lips um, from the cold and ripping skin off. And one day I decided this is no good. So I did some shifting in my playing apparatus and my squeaky little high G that I had turned into a roaring double C in about 10 minutes. So I knew I was onto something and uh, I, you know, didn't take long to perfect it, but that, yeah. So yeah, I stumbled onto it. Um, I was lucky. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the, the, the things that uh, is kind of interesting to me is that it's something you stumbled. So you say you stumbled on it and you continue to refine uh, your aspects and your your uh, analysis in terms of, of the playing me uh, mechanics. So, um, you know, when you were playing more regularly, uh, you know, doing doing uh, you know those those higher profile gigs and you know working professionally, um, did you find when did you find the need to start to really dive into the mechanics of what you were doing and, and to develop a, a more thorough and sort of methodical approach to your playing well the the high notes were always there um i had some chop trouble um when you play using the mf protocol you play with very relaxed chops so um you end up doing damage to your tissue because your chops are relaxed instead of tense um, so i always had the high notes but at the expense sometime of the chops and take one look at Maynard's chops. Um, he did the same thing because he he is the Maynard Ferguson protocol. So anyway, um, there was, <clears throat> in that regard, I had to be cautious of certain things. I, I, I could damage myself by you using my air. I have very enthusiastic air, let's say. And I could, uh, you know, I could do damage and I did do damage with it. I shredded the vibrating surface here in Las Vegas and it took like 10 years to heal. Um, I couldn't really take time off because I need the money, but it um, wasn't much fun, you know, uh, but finally it did heal. So I always knew how to do that aspect of playing. And then the rest is if you can play in the upper register and when I, upper register, I mean above high G, um, when you can play up there consistently, no matter what's wrong with your chops, uh, the rest of the horn kind of just falls into place. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so when, you know, the speaking of, of kind of like this, uh, you know, the, because the MF protocol, I, you know, I got turned on to that. I, I just remember seeing a post on, on Facebook or something like that. Or one of the, the forums is like, Oh, well, Lynn's got something going on and checking it out and then checking out your, uh, uh, your X piece and, and some of the other stuff that you, you've, uh, been concocting in your mad scientist laboratories down there. Um, and I just, I found it uh, so precise in uh, your explanation and everything uh, followed a very logical progression, uh, which I find that for a lot, you know, whether it's in music or, or sports or, or anything, uh, sometimes you have people that have, have very high level of skill, 
but they can't tell you what they do uh, or how they do it. They just, you know, I just pick up the horn and I blow or I put the ball in the, in the, the basket. Um, but you're able to articulate things in such a precise fashion that it indicates that you really did spend some time diving into uh, this methodology uh, and, and doing it in a way that allows you to then to disseminate it to more people. So, you know, when you think about that process, uh, I mean, is that something that you've always been, uh, is it the kind of personality you have that, that you like to, to take things apart, dissect and put them back together, uh, find creative ways of doing it, or, or was that like a necessity? Well, both. Um, I'm always, I've got this inquiring mind, <laughs> which gets me in a lot of trouble. But um, yeah, I'm always trying to, um, I call myself an optimizer. So you give me any any problem, just about any situation, and I can optimize it and make it the best. And sometimes making it the best is the lesser of two evils, but still it's it's the best it can be. So yeah, so yes, I had to I had to um in retrospect is when I discovered all this um protocol, um, the ability to articulate the protocol. Um at the time I was just playing. I, I was, I was doing one of the worst things you can do with the proto protocol, and that was I had a mouthpiece that was way too big. So I was up against a wall and, and didn't know it. Um, and I should have known it, uh, playing with both Chase and Maynard. Um, I should have seen it, but I didn't because I was getting good results with the big mouthpiece. But I had to do a lot of chop maintenance. Um, anyway. Looking back, I should have played a much smaller mouthpiece. I should have played a small V cup, which is one of the key elements of the protocol, like Maynard did. Yeah. And by the way, Chase should have played one too. Chase was always running out of chops. Uh, the great, the great indicator of chops uh, of correct mouthpiece is if, if you can take a week off and come back and play fine, then you, you your mouthpiece is the right size. If you come back and struggle, then your mouthpiece is too big. Yeah. And it's a, a lot of people don't want to accept that because it defies convention. But who defied convention better than anybody? Maynard. So I just look at the master. I was lucky to work with him when, when he was really in uh, what I call his second prime. Birdland days, first prime. Birdland Canton, those, that first prime. Second prime, I thought was Chameleon, the Rocky days. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just... It was it was fun work, working with Maynard and, and helping him um, when I could, <laughs> helping him, if you can imagine that, D just do what he wanted me to do, which was modify his mouthpiece a certain way and do things like that. And I think his his sound and range were um, outstanding in, in the chameleon days. Yeah, yeah. A good combination, a good balance of everything. Yeah, I mean, I was not fortunate uh, to be able to, to to see him in the earlier days, but uh, yeah, I definitely was was there from those chameleon days forward, or, or you know, going going onward. And yeah, I remember the first time I heard him play is just like yeah, live. I mean, obviously I heard the albums. I'm like, yeah, but this this is phenomenal. And then to be there in the audience and go, holy cow! I mean, that sound was just. It was amazing, and um, I, I don't think there's, uh, well, yeah, it's a unique sound. Everybody's got their own unique sound, but but uh, there's a very, very uh, special balance of just that monumental core to his sound. It just, 
Uh, it didn't matter whether he's playing a, a low F sharp or a, you know, a, a D or E above double C. I mean, it still had that, that presence. Um, so, uh, you know, like being in that space, uh, you know, whether, whether it's playing with, with Chase or Maynard, or, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, when you're, you know, working with, with, uh, with Thad and, uh, the, the Akiyoshi band, uh, you know, you're, you're surrounded by really great players being in Vegas. You're going to be surrounded by really great players. Who are some of the other players that, you know, when you were working, that you were working with and you, and you would be, man, you know, that guy, that that's inspirational. That's an inspirational kind of player for me. Well, I mean, I came out of the gate kind of hard and fast, you know, with Chase and Maynard. So there, there's the top two right there. Um, the Chase gig was highly coveted in the day and I never thought I'd even have a chance at that gig. Um, that was my first gig. And then Maynard was a, my second favorite at that time. And that ended up being my second gig. So um, those two are at the top of the list. And then, you know, I worked with so many good players. I, I hate to eliminate anybody, but um, in LA, especially in 1975 after Maynard's been, I learned so much that year. Um, and some people like Bobby Shue and Gary Grant, they kind of took me under their wing and helped me stumble through the, you know, the trumpet part because of my high notes were, were still very useful. Um, I, I don't even know where to begin. It, L.A. was just in that. That was like back in the heyday of L.A. And there was everywhere you went there all rehearsals and, and gigs and everything else, the players were just phenomenal. People I never even heard of before. Um, but you know, there, there's the, you work with the um, Chuck Finleys and, and the John Audinos and the Rachel Scarys and those kind of people. And, and I look at myself and I go, what the heck am I doing here? You know, but I, it was, I guess, for the high notes. Yeah, yeah, wow. Um, I mean, it is a skill you know, and, uh, it's a very specialized skill and it, and it helped you to, uh, help you to forge a career, you know, and it, it's funny because some, you know, so many people talk about, uh, you know, how the, the relative lack of importance of high notes, mm -hmm. uh, some people even like, you know, ah, he's just a high note jockey. Well, you know, but, but when you need, when you need somebody with chops, you definitely need somebody with chops, you know, it's, uh, yeah, especially the demands of modern music has changed, has changed so much. Uh, and, and a great part because of, of people like Maynard and Chase, um, where what, uh, what a player is, is demanded to do because of the music, you know, you, you can't, it's, even though they say, you know, the cash register is everything up to high C, Still, if you want to be kind of, you know, in, in those top call positions, you got to have a little bit more in the tank than that. So uh, when when you were in the L.A. Uh, in the L.A. scene, um, you know, how how did you you uh, you manage the like, I, I guess the, the better question is, how did you make that transition between the road work and then you know, kind of transitioning into uh, the LA kind of studio scene and then the, the La Vegas show scene, which are kind of, you know, those are a different kind of vibe than, than being out on the road and grinding. Totally different, yeah. Well, I, I wasn't a big fan of the road. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, the idea of, you know, what we did 300 miles every day on a bus and then 
I think I, our record was, I, I forget exactly, Bob Summers would know. Um, I think it was 42 days in a row or something, one-nighters. You just get, you just get kind of burned. I'm sure everybody's told you that. Um, and Maynard was phenomenal and Chase was phenomenal and all that, but, um, but the road, wow. But so anyway, it went to LA and the way I transitioned was um, I made as many rehearsals as I could. And as I said, a couple of people took me under their wing and helped me out. And a couple of the um, people who would hire, you know, they, they heard me and they wanted that. So it, it just took time for me to acclimate to sitting down, reading music for the first time and playing it correctly the first time and the 10th time if needed. Um, I did not do a lot of recording, um, but I did a lot of live stuff. I think one, one week, I was trying to remember, I think it was 27, I had 27 playing engagements in a week or something like that. I, I can't even imagine how I did that. That's like three a day, right? And then yeah. some, but it, with all the traffic and everything in LA, uh, it wasn't easy, but mm -hmm. that's, what it, that's what it took. It just took a lot of playing. And I really became a much better trumpet player in that year in LA, but um, right before the, um, the recording that Toshiko was going to do in December, I had a chance to uh, contract Buddy Rich's band um, for Seattle 18 hours later. And so I contact 11 people because um, Lloyd Michaels and the group mutinied on him, which, you know, Buddy was you yeah. know, a volatile personality. Anyway. Why would people mutiny on Buddy? Come on. <laughs> yeah, but I really like Buddy a lot. He, no bullshit at all. He was just, uh, you know, gave 110% all the time. He expected you to, too. So that's fine with me. I'm yeah. good with that. So anyway, I left. I left LA for a while. And then at the time he had his club in New York and I was going to go play lead in his club there. That was our agreement. Well, on the way back across the country, um, he, he went bankrupt or the club went bankrupt. I don't know how it worked exactly, but there was no more gig. So I ended up uh, living in um, New Jersey, uh, which is where my wife was from. So I lived there for a short time and then I got on Thad Mel's band. Um, Worked in New York some, but not too much. But that Mel's band, we did uh, like almost a four-month tour of Europe that summer. 76 recorded the Live in Munich album. Um, well, you talk about a diverse group of jazz musicians. That, that was the band right there. Incredible. I mean, wherever you turned, it was, it was some monster. But, you know, you'd be amazed every night at the solos. And, and Porcino was playing lead. And Earl Gardner, who, who went on to do some amazing stuff too, um, was playing third. And I was playing second, and it, we it was just quite the musical experience. Totally different than the Maynard's band because you never knew what was going to happen next on that band. But it, it was great. It was great. So I guess you could say I I didn't really adapt well to the whole scene in LA. Um, it, it wasn't really to my liking. What I, I don't know what I was expecting, but apparently it wasn't what I was expecting. And it's, I think Bobby Shu said, you go into a, a, a studio situation and it's 95% boring and 5% sheer terror. And, <laughs> and I, I think it, it, it's the boring part that got to me. 
you know, I like a good challenge, or I did in those days. But um, boredom is, man, why do you think I left Maynard Spain after a year? I, I just, I got bored. And I don't dislike it or anything like that. It's just, what's next? That's, I'm the Zen guy. I was like, okay, I've done that. What's next? And I've had to, you know, that's been my whole life like that. So anyway, I did Thad Mel, and while I was on Thad Mel's band, uh, a friend of mine, one of the people who helped me get on Maynard's band, John Disney, um, he got me the gig at the Dunes Hotel playing lead. So, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll do that for a while. So I went there, learned a lot in Las Vegas, but like I said, I hurt my chops after about three weeks and then had to live with that for almost 10 years. So. Um, I adapted, Las Vegas is, I'm, I'm sure other people have told you the same thing. Las Vegas is like a factory job. And it's, um, there are good things about that. You get to sleep in the same bed every night. We made, we made good money. I was on the relief band. I was at the dunes for uh, a year. And then I got on Johnny Hegg's relief band, which was another coveted gig at the time because we played the house bands night off. So we had that variety. Every night was different. And plus we made a lot more money than the house bands. And of course the hotels end up figuring out a way to get rid of that um, because of the cost, which they did. So the showrooms went down to six nights instead of seven, you know, for the house bands night off, which is, was our bread and butter. Right. Uh, so anyway, that, that became, Las Vegas was kind of, to me, uh, the way I expected LA to be. Um, except I knew I wasn't going to, the relief gig in Las Vegas was very similar to what I expected LA to be. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did leave LA at the time. It just, it, it just was not that palatable. And I loved playing with Buddy and the, the thought of playing lead in his club in New York and sleeping in the same bed every night. Wow. That, that was great. And wow. It, Buddy was just, you know, a total, a total Marine. You know, yeah. just got everything right every time. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it sounds interesting. I mean, it, it's kind of a, a, there's a dichotomy, you know, there's the, uh, there's the uh, desire for the predictable, you know, having a, a same place to sleep in, you know, that, that consistency of having a home base as opposed to the uh, being on the road. Um, and then there's the, uh, desire to have new and challenging experiences and it, yeah that that's kind of the 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 dichotomy that exists that you know when you're when you're on the road you know uh it's easy to uh to become frustrated because you don't have that home base where you feel like you're just kind of floating in the wind uh and then people that that get the the steady gigs are like itching to itching to get out itching to do something different um and, and I think it's, it's our ability to mentally, uh, mentally and emotionally and spiritually uh, deal with those, those situations that, uh, that there is no such thing as the perfect situation. So, you know, what are some of the mechanisms that, that you have uh, in place and the, and the kind of thought processes that, that you've gone through to make the best of the moment, to make the best of the situation that you're in at the time? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I'm not, I'm not very successful at it sometimes, I'll tell you that. Um, 
you know Pima children. Mm -hmm. uh, comfortable in the chaos, you know, comfortable with uncertainty. I think that is the key to um, a happy life. Where Krishnamurti said, um, you know, one time he asked the crowd, he goes, you know what his secret is? And the big hush over thousands of people, right? And he goes, I don't mind what happens. So I'm not good at that. I'm, you know, astrologically, Slava has it all explained why I'm not good at that and everything, but I continue to try. And through meditative practices and even something as simple as being in the outdoors um, seems to um, pacify me in ways that are beneficial, let's say. Um, so that's my coping mechanism now. I, I wish, I wish I was um, further along that path, but um, wanting to be where you're not is, um, that's a fool's errand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah Eck, Eckhart Tolle says that uh, stress is being here and wanting to be there. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I think that that's, that's a huge part of it is, uh, you know, there, we're all, we're all struggling, you know, we're all trying to make sense of, uh, out of, out of this life. Um, but I, the one thing that impresses me uh, is that a lot of people allow themselves to get, you know, they get stuck in situations that they're unhappy with, uh, but they just, they stay stuck in those positions. And, and you know, you have been in positions where you have not been happy uh and you've made you made the decision to make changes and and, and like you know if you, we go back to the main or, or you know the chase gig you know there there are a lot of people that that would have you know given their their left eye to to be in that band <laughs> uh you know, or, or any part of their body uh you know there are people that yeah. Maynard gig, you know, back in the day, I mean, if you were a trumpet player, if you were a jazz trumpet player, or lead trumpet player, you know, that was a gig you wanted to have, you know, and, you know, or to be in LA. Uh, so you were in these coveted positions. And for whatever reason, you decided, you know, I, as much as I like this, I want to go somewhere else. And, and you were able to make those shifts. And a lot of people aren't able to do that or aren't able to do that with, without some level of regret or remorse. So, um, yeah, to me, that, that's really, uh, that is a sign of a more enlightened approach, whether, whether you want to think about it, like a high enlightenment or just, you know, like you say, you know, kind of getting past the bullshit and just, Hey, this is, this is life. And, and I've got to live it the way that I want to live it. So, um, you know, what kind of, uh, what motivates you then, uh, in your, in your life, in your pursuit? I mean, what, what, what are your what are your goals or your your visions or your aspirations of, of Lynn Nicholson? Well, goals um, at this point are a lot different than they were back then. Um, Maynard uh, kind of scolded me. He, go, he said, uh, it's okay to have goals. He goes, but enjoy the journey because at the end of the day, all there really is is the journey. Once you get to a goal, I'm sure you've noticed this. Um, you, you reach a goal and then you go, okay. I'm here now what so it's just a constant it's a constant thing of moving on to the next thing so that is the motivation I guess I mean why would why would anybody stay in a situation that doesn't make them happy and, and or and or doesn't create value there's a lot of people 
I'm sorry to say, especially in today's world, where there's not much value being created. It's just a bunch of, uh, you know, advertising and man, I mean, there are so many middlemen out there who don't create anything. They just help the people who do create something market their goods or whatever. And of course, I'm a horrible salesman, but, but that's, that's what it amounts to really. And if I could snap my fingers and be some way at all, it would be, I don't mind what happens. That. So whatever comes up, fine. Um, and when I look back on things, everything, I see that the universe or God or however you want to look at it always had a better plan for me than I could figure out. All, all the way back to when I was in high school, I was an engineer. You asked earlier how, why I was so scientific and everything. I, I was going to be an engineer. I was going to go to the Air Force Academy, IIT or MIT. And then the, pro, the universe dumped this protocol on me. I was trying to keep from ripping skin off the mouthpiece. Instead, it gave me an upper register. So I, that was not my, nothing was as it seemed. So at that point, I decided I'm going to be a trumpet player for a living. And my band director, you know, oh, you're never going to make it, and blah, 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 blah. And in those days, it was like, what do you mean I'm not going to make it? Of course I'm going to make it. I never thought twice about failure. Um, as I get older, it's easier, you know, failure is, <laughs> you don't have quite as much, uh, I don't know what it is, tenacity or something. Um, concept's still the same, but it, it's not as, as uh, forceful and, and vibrant. You know, it's not, a, it's not retaliatory. It's not like, what do you mean? You know, it's not like that. It's like, okay, yeah, <laughs> you might be right. So anyway, that happened. Then, then I end up um, getting on Chase's band and I got fired off of Chase's band. And at the time I was 21. So I was like, okay, you know, I, they, he, he told me they, they, meaning the other trumpet players wanted to get a friend on the band. And okay, I get it. You know, that's fine. And no sooner did I get off of Chase's band, I got called from Maynard's band. And had I stayed on Maynard's band, uh, I mean, on Chase's band, I'd probably been in the plane that went down. So that happened, I, I think, in August of 74 or something. Um, I remember talking, I got, sadly, a friend of mine, John Emma, I got him on the band as a guitar player. Um, he died in the crash. But he came around to, he and D'Artagnan Brown came around to the um, one of our concerts and he goes, oh, man, he goes, you're so lucky. He, he said, we have nothing, you know, nothing left on the band. He says, you're way better off here. So I didn't plan that. I didn't plan to get fired. You see what I mean? Yeah. And it didn't bother me too much when it happened. So, I, But I, I didn't consciously think to myself, wow, if there's a better plan out there than I could come up with. But every time, if I rely on my intuition and just kind of go with the flow, doesn't mean you lie down and play dead. Not at all. It's not that. But go with the flow. Okay, you know, there's clues all the time that come along. And I don't think we pay enough attention to the clues. But sometimes we do. And then good things happen. And you move on. When I was on Maynard's band, I have kind of a big regret uh, leaving so early. Uh, Sandy Sandberg um, and John Disney were the two people that got me on the band. And Sandy told me, he goes, yeah, afterwards, he told me, well, you know, I think I think um, 
you, you may have left too early, <laughs> but Maynard had big plans for me. And I didn't find this out till way after. But looking back on the relationship I had with Maynard, he treated me like an equal on the band. He, he did have big, one time he said, you learn to dance, he said, I'll make you a star. And I was too hip to learn how to dance. And then I heard feedback from that from other people later. He really, I'm not getting into it, but yeah, he really had big plans for me. So, but I just, it was, it was time for me to move on. My mind said, it's time to move on. And so I did. So I didn't trust my intuition. And I went into the situation in LA. I mean, there's all different kinds of ways to look at it. You can, there's parallel universes, maybe there's, you know, who knows how it all works? I, my mind can't comprehend anything like that. You know, people, people believe what other people say. I think that gets us in a lot of trouble. Um, I don't believe what anybody tells me anymore. I mean, if, if I go, go to the, you know, take my Jeep in to get it fixed, I believe the service manager when he tells me because we're on the same page. We're both off-roaders and, and love the outdoors and everything. And he's become a friend. So I believe what he tells me, what he believes to be true. But as far as other things like people who profess to know more about God, for example, than I do, what? What makes you think you know more than me? I mean, direction, uh, um, connection with source is very personal. And I go straight to source. Yeah. And I look back and <clears throat> again, I don't want to impose my opinion on somebody else, but I'm certainly not going to listen to somebody else's opinion about something that's dear and dear to me and, and works. Yeah. And works because you can you can only sense um, the presence of whatever it is going on out there by going there yourself in my world. So I think a lot of people are just worker bees. They go to work, look forward to their lunch breaks, their weekends, their two weeks off every year, whatever it is. Um, not much to look forward to this last couple of years. But anyway, there's that's fine. I think all that's fine. It's just not where I am. Yeah. So yeah. as far as where I'm going from now, from now, I'm looking, I call it looking for a wave to ride and it has to be a tsunami. So I look for, I look for something like that. Had I stayed on Maynard's band, my life had been totally different, but coming to Las Vegas, going to LA, then coming to Las Vegas, that Mel's band, Toshiko, Don Ellis, all the, all these bands I played on. Um, I learned a lot about trumpet and, relationships and i met um i i'm probably the only musician in history who never drank never smoked never did drugs and i took some prescription pain meds when i broke my leg in 1988 when i broke my ankle in 2011 and when i had my total knee replacement in june of 2021 so but not horrible amounts you know i still have plenty right. left <laughs> and i i would take like a quarter of a tab you know instead of the whole thing because they just put me to sleep. But anyway, I, I think you see my point. It's, we all have like different paths that we go down and to be uh, like, I used to do so much. I used to, my mind to come in and say, I want to do this. Mine was always about, we were poor, we grew up poor. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but in retrospect, we were poor. <laughs> so I was always, my, my folks, 
my mother especially was always worried about money and i um got some of that programmed into me i think so i was always worried about money i still do that to some extent so i'm always trying to figure out how can i create value and maybe make some money at the same time so i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that but money's not at the top of the list right boy i sure meandered a lot on that that's, uh, that's, that's good it's good stuff man it's good stuff and you know it, i i've said this countless times um that this kind of conversation um this is if you if someone is is in music school right now or someone is is contemplating uh having a career as a professional musician i think these are the things that they need to learn before they make those those decisions before they make those commitments um because that's this is the reality of of what it means to be uh in the music industry these are some of the things that you, you have to keep in mind it's and you know some people are willing to some people are 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 doing it for the artistic uh integrity of it fantastic that's great some people are just in it for the buck Okay, if that's your decision, that's your decision. But uh, I think that, that having clarity of purpose and understanding that, you know, if you sell your soul, um, you know, you may have the mansion, you may have, you know, uh, all the downloads, but you're still going to end up being miserable at the end of the day, you know, and if, but if you're in it for just providing value, if you're in it to, uh, to express yourself and in, in, uh, to be true to who you are, uh, then whether you, whether you have that monetary or, uh, you know, the, the fame or, or that sort of stuff at the end of the day, it really is less important. You know, it's that you're just being true to who you are. And that to me is the most valuable thing. You know, if you can live your life true to who you are, then it, then the rest of it's just, it's gravy, you know? So, uh, but I think these are the kind of conversations that a lot of people need to need to have. And, I think, especially like with, with you, that having that unique perspective um, of having gone through the the arcs of, you know, music was not your, it, it, you didn't want music to be your full-time thing at, at the beginning, then it was your full-time thing, and then it's not your full-time thing anymore. So it's like going through, through these different phases, and you're still in. And I think the problem a lot of people have is that they tie their identity uh, to what they do. Exactly. What they do being an expression of who they are. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that really ties you down. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, you know, I, I know for myself, I've I've made shifts through my life uh, several times. And now that I'm a little older, I'm able to look back and go and see how it all ties together. You know, all those decisions I made that at the time I felt like I was kind of like completely turning my back on aspects of my life. And in some ways I was. But the things that are most important still are there. So it's like, oh, these are just all different expressions. They're facets of my personality. And so I don't have to be tied down to any one expression. It's just I get to choose which one I want to, to bring to the forefront you know, at any given point in time. Yeah, I, I think you know, if more people could do that, we'd have a lot happier, <laughs> oh. a lot happier mankind, let's say. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I want to go back for a second to your, uh, sure. your talk about uh, engineering, your, your engineering uh, concepts. Uh, is that what kind of got you into the, uh, the whole mouthpiece design and uh, tweaking and, and uh, you know, the gear, the kind of the gearhead approach to, 
to things that because I know you you like you said you you uh, you helped Maynard with some of his uh, mouthpiece tweaks and stuff like that. So when when did that fascination with the mechanics of of trumpet playing uh, like the the physical equipment uh, bite you and and where did you gather that those resources from? Well, it, that, that started pretty much when when I shifted over to um, the protocol way of playing upstairs. Um, it just became fascinating. And so I, like I said earlier, I'm an optimizer. So what can I do to optimize this? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It wasn't hard. It wasn't hard to shift over. I mean, I had some very rudimentary tools. I would um, cut a mouthpiece cup and stuff like that. Um, I'd stick it, the drill in a vise and then put the, the mouthpiece in the drill and spin it and cut it with a knife and polish it with whatever I could find and stuff like that. And um, I made the mouthpiece I played on Chase's band, I actually made out of an old York trumpet mouthpiece. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a great piece, a very wide, 0.745 inches inner diameter. I still have it. Um, people talk about pay, playing a big mouthpiece. Well, that's big. <laughs> anyway, so I did the you know, all the protocol stuff on that. The, the caveat is, of course, you have to um, practice more and not practice chop maintenance. Um, so the okay, back to the engineering thing. Um, that has allowed me to be a good optimizer. I can analyze the situation quantitatively, not with some you know, qualitative wish in my head, but um, I can look at it and go, okay, this needs to happen. So I bought, my first step was I bought um, the drills, the drill bits and the, the hand reamers for the throat. Cause I always thought like this mouthpiece is so stuffy, you know, and I started on a seven C by the way. No, it was a seven, a straight seven. Um, and once I got, I, um, I had a trumpet teacher in um, Naperville, Illinois, Bud Cater, and he was an instrument repairman too, and he had a lathe, so he cut me a mouthpiece and it was shallower and was like, wow, this, this really works good. And so then that got me started on realizing that you don't have to just buy a mouthpiece from the store. You can go, you know, I was, what, 16, 14, probably 14 or 15, so somewhere in that range. Um, and that's, that's when it started. And my analytical mind then in school, of course, I took all the, the math and the physics and chemistry and all that stuff, um, thinking I was going to be an engineer. And when I, after the protocol kicked in, I just dropped all that. It was no longer interesting. And so I got a maintenance band, and after about, hmm, I'm guessing it was two weeks, something like that, he knew that he, somebody told him I had the reamers and the business. He came back with his Holton mouthpiece, which was a prototype, and he said, Lynn, um, can you put a 19 hole in this? And I, and I, I measured it, and it was, it was like a, probably about a 24, maybe a 25 hole. And 
I said, well, how about we, you know, go to a 23 first or maybe a 22? And he said, no, I want a 19. I said, okay. So crank, 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 crank. And it, it took a whole lot of brass out of there. And I had used two reamers. The one got me to about a, uh, what was it? Maybe a 22. And then the other one took me to the, to the 19. And it was a tapered hole. So at the one end, it was a 16. And the smallest point was a 19. And I'm thinking, man, I, did I just mess him up? And that night, it was my birthday. It was January 20th. Um, yeah, that's right. It was about two weeks because I started on January 6th. Oh, see how that works? Anyway, um, he played the loudest triple C I ever heard in my life at the end of Hey Jude. And it's one of those, it was one of those events. I think about it right now, just talking to you and since shivers up my spine. It was, it was a triple C that didn't know it wasn't a double C. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? One of those. Yeah. I've never heard one before or since. I heard a recording one time of, I'm, I'm in the back of the audience, you know, if we say Jude, so I'm playing stuff out there. And, and what a relief came over me. It was like, whoa, good, I didn't mess it up. So then at that point, then we started like opening backboards a little bit more and shaving down the shank so it fit closer to the lead pipe. I had this idea that there was too much turbulence being created or something. I, I'm not sure it was true, but um, Maynard and I both played right up against the lead pipe, just allowing a little bit. I used to shave it up and shave it down until it hit and then, then file a little bit off the bottom so it wouldn't hit, you know, the end of the shank. <laughs> Primit, all primitive stuff. And you can, if you look carefully on, on some of the photos from that, generation you can see the shank on his is um brass and was never replated or anything but so it, it just became a fascination or how can is there an ultimate mouthpiece for, for you yeah i think there is nobody finds it because they don't approach it um logically they approach it with um i call it trumpet voodoo you know a certain well, a lot of mouthpiece makers ha have this kind of um, oh, you know, this has to be this, and if you don't do this, then this happens. And okay, but are you a trumpet player exactly? I mean, do you? What are you? Let, let me hear you play. And, and of course, they can't. Um, I have. I'm not going to mention. I'm. Like, I don't mention any names because my filters are on. Right. I a while back I went went to um, one of these highly rated mouthpiece makers. And I answered a whole bunch of questions and then said it's going to be like a year or two wait for it. And I talked to a couple of his clients and they said, yeah, <laughs> it took two years for me to get the thing dialed in. And so I called Jim New, who I'd already worked with um, at Canstall, when he was at Canstall, getting the first prototypes of the X piece made. And um, Jim and I talked for maybe five minutes on the phone and he sent me um i said he sent me like a several prototypes um and i i'm allergic to brass or i it really bothers me i can't tell how mouthpiece plays unless it's played so he sent it to the players and then sent me pieces and jim is phenomenal he he asks he'll answer my questions he'll give me i some advice maybe sometimes and i go Okay, or I'll say, no, do it this way. And there's no argument, there's nothing. He does it, 
I, I have so many prototypes. I've learned so much since being with Jim New because of all the stuff he's taught me um, by doing the work that I, I wanted to get done. And, and he's such a nice guy too. And he handled, we drop ship from there and he handles all the shipping and everything. So um, it's just a totally nice guy. And he's got this huge collection of, of mouthpieces, but you know, squeaky wheel gets the oil. He, he's not a good salesman either. So he, he, he doesn't do huge business. He does well, but he doesn't do a huge business. Um, but that's the, kind of, that's the kind of thing I like in a person. I like a real person who, who doesn't try and tell me how to do what it is I know I need to do. If I have a question, I'll ask the question. Past that, you know, let me screw it up myself. But anyway, so I have all kinds of prototypes since, since um, more prototypes than ever before. And one of my, um, I'm meandering again. <laughs> you want to reel me back in? Yeah, it's, it's all good. It's all good. I'm enjoying it. Okay. Bob Reed is one of my favorite people, right? We tried to get a mouthpiece for me when I lived in LA and it just, I just couldn't, I don't know. We just couldn't get it quite right. But Bob told me two of the most valuable pieces of information I, I didn't know at that stage of the game with trumpet. Um, first, he said, you don't buzz into the, into the mouthpiece. You blow air into the mouthpiece and the vibrating column of blah, 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 whatever causes your chops to vibrate if you apply the air correctly. And I thought for a minute and tried it. And you know, that's exactly right. So I, so these people who free buzz and do all the free buzzing encourages chop tension. Buzzing on the rim, like the reversible rim and stuff like that, that encourages you to use your air properly because that rim won't speak if you're highly tensioned. And certainly won't speak, it, uh, it won't make, allow you to vibrate all the way across the rim for a big sound. Um, anyway, that was point number one. And point number two, he had this thing called, um, I don't know what he called it, but he took the cylindrical section out of the throat on my mouthpiece. And I was like, whoa, this, this is great. So I used to do that to all the mouthpieces and um, all the way up through, uh, to the point where I started playing really big throats. Um, I used to play like a 23 or something. And then I um, currently, I usually play around. It depends, it depends on the mouthpiece, but um, and which prototype it is, but usually somewhere around the 18 or uh, 19, something like that. So it's not as critical when you have a bigger throat. But Bob said, well, that keeps from boxing up the sound. And boy, was he right about that. And kind of a funny story, he called me back, um, I must have been a couple of years ago now. And he said, somebody was asking me about hourglassing the throat on a mouthpiece. He says, um, and they, they, you said it, and, you know, they heard it from you. And he, can you tell me what that is so I can replicate it? I said, Bob, that came from you <laughs> in 1975. <laughs> oh, okay. So anyway, it's funny how so, the, the technical aspects of things, that are they're often over overlooked because people don't want to try them. This, um, I'm not trying to sell anything. This is my RR mouthpiece, which it has a screw that goes into the throat. It's an 18, it's an 18 hole in the mouthpiece and the screw interrupts, it, it reduces your airflow. Well, some people think that it's going to screw up the sound because it makes the throat asymmetrical, right? 
who says that acoustics is symmetrical? In fact, I guarantee you it's not. You could, anyway, I could go on and on about that. But, but the, those, uh, and another one of my favorite um, myths is the uh, faster, uh, let's see, faster air makes you play higher. And in 1977, when Charlie Davis was helping me get out of my chop mess, um, I said that to him one time. So, well, you know, faster air makes you play higher, right? He goes, no, faster air makes you play louder. And it's a simple test. You just hold a, a middle C. I did it on, on video uh, on one of my Mythbuster things on YouTube. But these are valuable pieces of information that are often overlooked. And faster air, it does indeed make, hold the same size. I'm, I'm going to state it here just in case somebody had missed it. But um, whole size is the same. Everything is the same. Nothing's different. Lung capacity is the same. Take a deep breath, same breath each time. Play it loud, you'll hold it for maybe 15 seconds. Play it softly, you'll hold it for maybe 45 seconds, maybe a minute, depends on the person. Um, what does that tell you? The louder version, the air had to go faster through that same hole than it did when you're playing softly. And I mean, it's an absolute proof. And I've had people like swear at me. Uh, again, I won't mention names, but they're like froth at the mouth. They won't admit that something that is a fact is not a fact. So stuff like that, you know, makes me, I'm very analytical about stuff. And I really don't care if they think that, but it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And the concept of tightening up chops as you go higher, who's, where did that come from anyway? I, the only thing I can think of is it's from the legit world. And, and yes, if you play trombone or one and a half C or something, you're gonna, you have to tighten up and therefore you have to do chop maintenance and keep your chops really tight. Otherwise, you play the smallest mouthpiece you can. Well, one time um, we're playing doc at, uh, let's see, I think it was at Caesars and the trumpet section's there talking to him about something before he went on. And he said he had to practice five hours a day to stay even. This was back in, uh, early 80s, I think, five hours a day to stay even, right? Imagine that, just to stay even. If you want to get better, you had to, well, he's saying, he's talking about chop maintenance. And we just all looked at each other. It's like, well, we didn't say it out loud, but we have lives, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a life beyond trumpet. And so we, we, uh, just, we weren't laughing at him, but we admire that type of dedication. But in retrospect now, since then, I did, at the time it didn't occur, his mouthpiece is too big, right? And this is Doc Severinsen. So I, I, I mean, he's one of my top five trumpet players. So I, I would never, <laughs> I would never dispel whatever it is he's doing because it worked, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but it's but five hours a day. Wow, what a buffer that is. Yeah, well, and you know, I I think there there are kind of two uh, two things that, that stick out to me from from that conversation is you know one, you know we we try to take this this process that that's occurring inside of us. I mean, uh, 
inside the horn, inside of us uh, to, to make music. And whether, whether it's you know, trumpet playing or, or actually anything, you have, a, you have an idea of what you're doing. You know, this is what you think you're doing. This is the way you describe what you're doing. But it ain't necessarily what you're really doing. So, you know, I think that, that a lot of times what happens with these truthisms that come out is that that someone, uh, you know, it's, you know, well, you know, like you, 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 you breathe, you breathe from your diaphragm or you breathe from your toes or you, or you you're doing this or you're using this shape or whatever you're thinking about your air faster or, or wider or, you know and a lot of times it becomes that's you know that's the way they envision the process but if you actually you know broke it down and, and did the science on it then maybe that's not exactly what you're doing uh, so i think that a lot of times what, what happens is that it becomes gospel because uh, someone that we respect, someone that we view as an authority. I'm actually reading a, a book on that right now, a uh, great book on, on uh, uh, social psychology. Um, you know, if you're perceived as being an expert in something, then, you know, you're going to, the, the person that's being influenced is, is going to buy into that, you know, regardless of whether that person is actually you know, stating fact or not. So I think a lot of times that, that a lot of we, what we've had in terms of Trump pedagogy, um, has you know it it comes from a good place i think you know it, it all comes from a good place of trying to help somebody to to uh become a better player but a lot of times the way that people explain things uh if, if they don't really analyze the processes uh it can do more harm than good down the line because you're actually you, you can be leading someone down the wrong path right. uh, so i that that's that's one of the first first things that i i, I got out of that um and kind of the, the 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 second one is you have to be willing to experiment. <laughs> you kind of you gotta you know like that scientific mind. It's you know you you find something and you you play with parameters and and you try to find how to optimize things. And, and certainly you know if if you want to spend five hours a day you know doing maintenance, great. But uh, you know, what if you, what could I do to cut that down to four? I, I'm like you, I want to, I want to find my approach to life has always been to try and find the most efficient and effective methodology. It's like, you know, do I need to do, uh, like, yeah, uh, see my, my book here, uh, that like mm -hmm. the, with mindfulness and meditation, it's great. You know, if you can meditate two hours a day, fantastic. If you can meditate six hours a day, yeah, probably even better. Uh, but we can't all do that. But the process, what, the benefits that we get, the, the, the measurable physiological, neurological benefits we get can actually be achieved in 90 seconds or less, because that's how long it takes for, for your, uh, the neurotransmitters to change over and then the, brain, the, the brain's body, the body chemistry, the brain chemistry to change in, you know, between 30 to 90 seconds. So you don't have to do all of this. If you can, it's great. But when you understand how it works, then you only need this, this much. And if you can work with that much, then it's much more efficient and effective. So uh, I think that, you know, for playing, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, well, how can I get the best results with the least, not no effort, but the least amount of effort, the least amount of investment uh, in, in that process. So I think that those are, those are really kind of cool concepts. And I think those are things that, that more people need to consider if they're looking to, to take their playing to another level. Yep. I agree. It's uh, yeah. 
it's a matter of efficiency. And then, of course, the question that you might ask after that, let's say you have all this extra time all of a sudden, <laughs> then what? Yep. You got more time to do what exactly? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well you know, you, you can go out and, and enjoy some of those wonderful uh, uh, outdoor events that you go to you know i see man some of the pictures that you have on your facebook page the colors like even the picture behind you the colors are just surreal and um yeah i i think that uh you know if if we if we stop becoming slaves to the instrument or slaves to our jobs or slaves to whatever it is that we're slaves to uh like it does give you that extra time to uh actually experience life to live life so yep but, i agree 100 that's me and my metaphysical nonsense so <laughs> we all have metaphysical nonsense yeah so i yeah i and i i in some ways i hate to kind of go back to maynard again you know but because uh oh go ahead that's what I'm, that's what people want to hear I, I, put yeah. up a, I put up a picture from back in the day and get like 500 likes or something you know Okay, I wish I had more. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, you you were you had mentioned one of the things that, that he talked to you about about you know the the journey and the process. Um, everyone that I've talked to that that's played on his band, uh, you know, uh, it, or that that knew him uh, had had a good relationship with him over the years, um, you know, they talked about uh, his mentoring. And, you know, how they impacted them, uh, certainly as players, but especially the guys that, that were on the band, that, that there was, uh, there were some, some tremendous life lessons that were shared, you know, uh, by Maynard to, to the people in his band, especially, you know, those that, that he took a, a huge shine to. Um, so, you know, but if you had to say, like, encapsulate like one musical lesson that you learned from him and one major kind of uh, life lesson, uh, what would those be? Hmm. Well, I would say it's enjoy the journey. Um, it's as simple as that. Goals are okay, but enjoy the journey. He, um, Christian Murdy was uh, introduced to me by Maynard. He, I bought my first book, thanks to Maynard. It was called First and Last Freedom. I kind of rolled my eyes, you know, because I was coming out of, of being a devout Catholic, uh, one, wandering around Manhattan on Sunday morning, right, uh, while on Maynard's been looking for a church to go to. Because somewhere in the back of my mind, you know, if you didn't go to church on Sunday and you died, it was a mortal sin, you go to hell. And this weird kind of stuff like that when I used to kind of still wonder about it, if it was true or not. Um, I shed that pretty soon after that. But yeah, that, that's what I learned from Mayor. And, he, um, and going along with that, I would say his ability to adapt um, to what is uh, and turn apparent uh, liabilities into assets. And one of those um, that I learned from Maynard but didn't really uh, didn't understand it fully until recently was um, how important it is to relax your chops as you go higher. And the difference between, well, I'll ask you, what's the difference between 
uh, five hour, the end of a five hour gig and uh, five days off with your chops. What's the difference? Uh, end of a five hour gig. You're tired, right? Yeah. Is my point. Your chops are tired. Are they weak? What's the difference between weakness from playing too much and weakness from not playing enough? There is no difference. Right. So that, that's why the protocol is so good, because in those two situations, the protocol comes through. If you play with relaxed chops, small mouthpiece, big hole, um, V cups are preferred and they're absolute best for full implementation of the protocol. Um, that's it. You've got it dialed in. I mean, there's not, nothing else. The, riddle, the rest is easy, right? The middle part, when you've had enough practice and you had enough rest. <laughs> But Maynard used to do this. <clears throat> this is his ability to adapt. adapt. Maynard used to do this um, in 1974. He, we'd have a break that would be two or three weeks or whatever it was, and he wouldn't play at all. And he'd come back, and he'd do the sound check, if there was one, and he'd play a little bit. And you could tell he's holding back. He's not really, you know, he's playing at moderate volume, which is still plenty loud. And he had the front mic, so... You know, he can do that a little bit more easily than if you're in the back row, not knowing if you're going to have a mic or not. And so I watch him do that. And I'm thinking, how does he do this anyway? And now, many years later, it's because he played a small mouthpiece with a big hole. <laughs> so the, the mouthpiece, the mouthpiece purses the chops. I have a video about this, but in case people missed, this is the mouthpiece, right? If you have a, a conventional cup like this, and here's your chops coming in, they want to get blown open by the conventional cup. If you have a V cup, they come like this. What happens? They're held in place by the V, by the structure of the cup. So you don't have to, uh, you have to play with minimal lip protrusion to do it. And it's the perfect setup. And Maynard told me one time when he, he originally gave me the, uh, the Colicchio that he played on Kenton's band. And I ended up giving it back to him later. I think Roger got it. Um, but he had given it to me. And, and I was trying to convince him to keep it because I went to his house in Ojai and we're playing mouthpieces and horns, like two little kids, right? And because I just got in a Mar large bore Martin committee, which I really liked. And he didn't like them because they have flat high D. So you, know, you can play it open, man. Anyway. <laughs> so we're playing, going back and forth. And he, I said, here, I play this one because he'd given this to me on the last day of, my, uh, of the gig in, uh, in December, December 20th, 1974. And so he played it and, and I'm listening and I said, okay, now I'll do it on the chameleon piece. And the difference in sound was unbelievable. The, the 19 hole in the chameleon piece, essentially the same cups, right? 19 sounded huge compared to the, the sound of the of the 20 tight, it was a tight 24 in the Caligio piece. So you, you learn these things. You, I hope I'm not meandering too far again. But, oh no. But that's, yeah, those are the kinds of things I learned. Not necessarily that Maynard said something, but demonstrated. And going along with his ability to adapt, one time I made this mouthpiece for him. Um, and our first gig back was, it didn't occur to me because I didn't even know. We were at Carnegie Hall. I guess it was Newport Jazz Festival or something. And 
I wasn't into all that stuff back then. I didn't know. I, you know, I was just, okay, where's the gig? You know, where, where do I have to be and when? And I made make a, a mouthpiece for Maynard on my drill at home. And I took one of the other Holton prototypes that I had gotten from Sandy Sandberg and cut it down a certain way. And I thought, this is what Maynard should be playing. So it had a really sharp bite. It had a really flat rim. I mean, really flat, which accentuated the sharp bite. And it was still kind of a V cup, but it had a little bit more volume for the cup, right? And I had it shaved down so it would butt up against the lead pipe. We both had MF4, and so it was about the same. And I gave it to him when we got back at the sound check. And I said, hey, Maynard, I made this mouthpiece for you. Sometime when you get a chance, try it um, if you like. And he said, oh, yeah, thanks, man. And so he takes his mouthpiece out, the chameleon piece, right? puts this mouthpiece in, and proceeds to do Carnegie Hall on this mouthpiece, right? And Don Hahn insists that that's the best he ever heard Maynard sound. But after the gig, Maynard comes up to me, gives me the mouthpiece back, says, oh, thanks, man. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine going, playing it? And this mouthpiece was, I won't, it's, it wasn't a conventional piece, but it was leaning toward more convention than what he was playing, certainly, and, and a lot lot bigger and way sharper bite. And, oh, my God. I, and again, I was like scared to death that I'd screwed him up, right? Yeah, but, but he, he just went with it. Yeah, and so I, I learned that from him. And he told me the story of uh, his house burning down. He had a house on, on the Hudson River, I guess. Um, and he said, it was the best thing ever happened to him. All his belongings, I guess, everything gone. He said, I have a clean slate. He used to talk about that. He used to talk about the, the clean slate. He says, your slate is wiped clean every 20 seconds, was what he used to say. He says, so you, you have a fresh start every 20 seconds. But we get burdened by our thought process. And, you know, we think, well, this, this produced happiness for me last time, so I'll do it again, because I think it'll produce happiness this time. And, and then when it doesn't, it becomes like disorienting or something or disappointing or whatever you want to call it because you didn't get the same kind of happiness from it again. So I, that's a really important thing. Maynard was okay, essentially okay with what happens. I saw him get bugged at his own playing like maybe twice where I actually saw his ego come in. One was in his hometown and he didn't like live TV. But yeah, other than that, you know, he, he just took it as, it as it came. And he, I think he enjoyed having me there. I think I kind of reminded him of himself when he was this age, because I was like pure as the driven snow pretty much. Right? Uh, and he, he had somebody to play with. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'll go back one time, the day, the day um, that I went to Ojai, right? I drove in from LA, it was a long drive, I, almost an hour and a half, I think, from where I live in North Hollywood. Um, <clears throat> I got there and he wasn't there. He'd gone into town in his uh, Volkswagen van, right? He'd gone into town. I, I guess he forgot it was coming or whatever. So Flo um, gives me a glass of unfiltered apple juice and an art book and sits me down in this hanging tree. 
uh, hanging tree chair, I should say. And so I'm waiting, waiting. Pretty soon Bentley comes around and she says, hey man, you wanna go swimming? And I said, okay, I don't have any, I don't have any trunks or anything. So he went and got some trunks for me or whatever, just shorts, you know. And so we spent the afternoon waiting for Maynard, seeing who could go the furthest into the deep end holding a weight, you know, because you're just, you, as you go deeper, you walk down like this. And it was fun play. It was like, that's my kind of person, you know, enjoying life and stuff. And, and uh, that's what May, how Maynard was. And I was sure sorry to hear about um, what happened with Bentley. I, I, I was told it was a suicide. I can't imagine that. Not even for one second, not in my experience with him. But who knows what happened those those next few years? Yeah, but that's the, that's what made really important stuff. I, and when he gave me the book or told me about the book, I just kind of rolled my eyes, and because I I wasn't I wasn't there yet. But about ten years later, I got there, and it it's um, well I'll never get there. But I got to the point where I was receptive to it. And from that point on, then my life changed quite a bit spiritually. Very cool. Very cool. All right, man. Well, I tell you, we've, we've got a couple of segments we've got to get through. These are kind of our standard segments, but I right. could use to talk about you. We talk with you about this kind of stuff forever, but uh, I know that your time is, is valuable. But uh, we want to get to this first segment. Uh, and this is brought to us by uh, my good friend, Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. And uh, this is called Sound Off. And uh, we've actually touched on a lot of these topics already, but uh, I just want to dial it in a little bit. Uh, so it's about uh, your approach to sound and the, uh, you know, the suggestions that you would have for someone of how to achieve the best possible sound out of the trumpet as, as they possibly could. Um, okay. Keep your chops relaxed. Um, use your abs and intercostals to produce the pitch. Um, chops basically do not change too much as you ascend, except they, you may have to unfurl a bit if your chops become too tense and stop the air. Um, keep your tongue, there's a lot of tongue arching talk going around, keep your tongue low in the mouth, at least an octave lower than you think it should be. And uh, Bud Brisbois, I think, proved that with the fluoroscope studies. Um, his tongue was in the bottom of his mouth and he's playing above double C. Um, yeah, that's about it. Relax and relax and go higher. It's, it goes against all you know, but that's it. And if you really want to carry, if you really want to carry it out, um, you know, get the X piece and reversible rim, and that'll force you into it without much thought. Yeah. All right. Good deal. All right. Our next segment brought to us by uh, my good friends at Venture Mouthpieces, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. This is geared up. Use the, go, the uh, code TrumpetGurus21 to get 10% off your order. Um, and this is about your concepts of gear. And, you know, we've been talking about mouthpieces and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, the structure and throats and, and things like that. Um, and you've already kind of talked about some of the, 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 the approaches that you've used. Uh, but if you... If, if someone is thinking about changing their gear and their setup, what are some of the, the tips that you would give people to find the equipment that is best optimized for their playing situations? Okay. Um, 
if you take if you take five days off and come back to your mouthpiece and it feels big and your chops feel weak blah 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 your mouthpiece is probably too big period um, if you have reasons for doing that if you're a legit player and you want a big dark sound um, then you have to do a lot of chop maintenance so that does not apply as much um, alvazuti plays quite a small mouthpiece and he's all over the horn um, in styles and everything amazing so that's what i would do i would look at that and go okay and then i'd consider um i hate to keep plugging this x piece and reversible rim if you can play if you can play what i play on the rim you will own the upper register of the horn um period that's it you'll own it it's a, not something you'll strive for or whatever you'll actually own it um because everything inside you then uh that's everything comes from inside you because the rim doesn't offer any support at all it's an infinitely deep cup and uh that's it that's what i would do all right awesome and if anybody wants to uh check those out uh links in the show notes and uh you can you can find out all about the the protocol and the x rims and uh x piece and and I, I can testify. I I used uh, I I bought an X piece and used it not not to play gigs on, but just use it as practice and and things like that. And I I felt a difference, you know. So I I can I can say that that uh, it does work. Um, I'm, I'm sure if I invested a little bit more time and energy, it probably worked better. But you know, hey, that's the story of life, right there. Don't forget the rim. Most people, most people dismiss the rim. They either can't do it or they don't think it helps. And man, that is, that's key to a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's cool stuff. All right. Final segment. This is brought to us by Robinson's Remedies, rapid relief for your sore and tired chops. Uh, this is our Robinson's Remedies rapid fire round. It's a series of questions that bounce all over the place. Uh, so Lynn, I need your quickest responses to the series of questions. Are you ready, my friend? Okay. All right, here we go. First question. Who's the biggest influence in your life that is not a trumpet player? Uh, Roxanne. All right. What is your favorite book? Uh, Eckhart Tolle, A New Earth. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Blair Witch Project. Mm, it's a cinematographer coming out in me. Uh, <laughs> if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? <laughs> Motorcycle racer. Mm, okay. Uh, what's your favorite drink? Water. Uh, you could have a dinner party. Invite any three living people. Any three people in the whole wide world could come to this party. Who would you want to have there? That are currently alive now. Currently alive now. Yes, sir. Oh, boy. Eckhart <clears throat> Tolle. Kim Sperling and that's a tough one. I'm stumped. I, there's so many in the in the three spot. I can't think of one. Um, I'm supposed to be fast. I know. Um, Donald Trump. All right. Um... And at this uh, dinner party, you have three additional 
chairs and you can <laughs> have any three people that are no longer with us, any three people from history. Maynard, Chase, and Roxanne. All right. Lacquer, plated, or raw? Well, those are my only two choices. Those uh, Lacquer, plated, or raw? Those are your three choices. Oh, silver plated. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite quote? Um, I put it on my emails. All races end in a tie. It came from Maynard. I don't know where he got it. All right. What is your greatest fear? Uh, the end of the decline out of this life. Um, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Hmm. I snap my fingers and take away um, everyone's uh, nature of retaliation. A great power to have. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? Doing exercises. All right. What aspect do you think is the most underrated? Playing music. All right. You can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music, what would it be? Probably it would be um, to be a little bit more aggressive. Um, yeah, more aggressive. All right. Uh, and while you're back there, you're gonna give your younger self one piece of advice about life. be more accepting of what is all right and final question for you lynn nicholson what do you want your legacy to be hmm well if i cared about a legacy i would want people to, to think that i was a, a straight shooter and did some good here in various ways all right well you know you have a. Uh, as as a uh, as a player and as a uh, designer and as a educator you know you you've certainly touched a lot of lives so um you know you are making a difference in the world and and uh you know i certainly applaud you in and all that you have done and all that you continue to do so uh i want to thank you so much for your contributions and for your time today. This is it was great to get to get to know you personally. So this is this has been a, a joy for me. Thank you, Jose. Uh, pleasure was mine. All right. Well, I uh, hope that uh, you enjoyed uh, this hang as well. Remember uh, to like and subscribe and share. And uh, we want to have more of these kind of uh, you know conversations so you get to know the people behind the music and. Uh, you know, if you're interested in Lynn and what he's got going on, please uh, check out the show notes and uh, you can check out uh, more things about the MF protocol and uh, his uh, X pieces, multiple mouthpieces uh, and his Lynn's horn as well. So uh, just check, uh, check out the links and yeah, who knows? Might be exactly what you're looking for. All right. So thank you again for joining us for this episode of The Hang. And as always, folks, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. 
This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of olive oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Mm-hmm.